Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are in the office this week. It's good to be back after a week off. Hopefully our listeners got a chance to, to go back and listen to that live recording from the National Folk Festival, particularly the segment with County Executive Bob Culver from Wicomico County, who, as we all know, passed away Certainly going to miss County Executive Culver. Yeah, um, definitely. And it was it, it was a nice experience getting down to Wicomico County and to Salisbury and seeing what they're doing in that area, talking with the county executive and some other leaders from that area. So I, I, I like bringing that episode back anyhow, mm-hmm. uh, but also under the circumstances, it was good to you know go back and touch base on that visit with him. So yeah, he will be missed. Today on the podcast, we are going to discuss a number of issues. We'll discuss the latest on stalled negotiations between Congress and the White House over the next federal stimulus for COVID. We'll have a big update on elections. We'll discuss public and non-public school reopenings, state budget cuts, and the road ahead. And we'll take a look at Maryland's overall COVID trends. It's a lot of stuff. I think we need some help. And we, we do need some help. So thankfully, we have with us today Mako's Drew Jabin and Alex Butler to help walk us through everything. Drew, how are you today? Wonderful. Thanks for having me on. And Alex, how are you doing? Doing great, Kevin. Okay, so let's start with Maryland's COVID trends generally. I think we've seen, you know, up and downs here in Maryland. We have not seen the spikes that some of our southern and western states have seen lately. But I have a general feeling just walking around Annapolis that a lot of people are wearing their masks. I mean, maybe not in Ocean City. How are things looking with COVID generally, Michael? I mean, what are you seeing out there from your end? I'm not seeing a whole lot because I've been my family has been back indoors mostly, especially because it seems like it's been 115 degrees every day. Yes. Um, but uh, most of my experience is confined to the BNA trail and um, mass up, but not universal there. And it's crowded enough on the trail that we're back to wearing masks when we go out. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, mixed bag. But I don't know. I mean, watching the data, I feel especially conscious of all the guys guidance we got from Beth Blower when she was on a, a, a couple few weeks ago. You know, don't watch one day, try and look for the larger trends and so forth. And we're not out of the woods, but, not but we're also not Arizona, right? right. So, yeah. Drew, Alex, what are you guys seeing out there? I think I've seen pretty good compliance with the face masks, uh, especially in like grocery stores, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I think the only place where I've seen people not really wearing it is kind of, you know, in the gym or, or sort of sports mm. facilities where, you know, you, you can't necessarily wear a mask full time. So, uh, but other than that, I think generally when people are in, in crowds or around a lot of people, you can't keep six foot, six feet of distance. I think people are are, uh, are complying pretty well. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree with that. I've been downtown Annapolis a couple times, and everyone seems to be wearing masks. So yeah. that's good news. It's good news. We know masks work, right? I mean, yeah. we, we've seen in other states these spikes. Maryland was quick to act. I mean, we got mm-hmm. some criticism for that early on. But now, like New York, who is also quick, we seem to be trending in the right direction. But I agree, it's certainly not out of the woods, Michael. Right. And and so, you know, outdoor dining seems to be a thing that's going to be around a while. I, I don't know. I mean, among the things I miss 
sitting inside a restaurant and having someone serve me my plate of food right. is not high at all on the things that I'm dying to experience again. So I'm I'm settling up just fine with my takeout and picnic table and all those sorts of accommodations. I can live with that. Right. And I think we also have to give a <laughs> shout out to the counties who have been enforcing these orders at the local level. We heard the governor call on counties to, to ramp up that enforcement. It seems like things are working pretty well in terms of compliance out there. We've seen a couple issues, but Overall, again, I think, you know, things are moving in the right direction. So that's always good to see. Let's hope so. But like you said, we're not out of the woods. We're not out of the woods. And one of the issues surrounding reopening and not being out of the woods are school reopenings. Again, public and private schools. So Drew Jabin, you've been following this for MAKO. You have a great blog piece that's sort of day by day what school systems are doing across the state. So what are we seeing now? First of all, when is the deadline for them to submit their reopening plans to the state? So the deadline to submit plans to the Maryland State Department of Education is coming up quick. It's August 14th. Most counties have announced their reopening plans. There's a few still in the works. It seems like pretty much everyone so far is going virtual. So we're not going to be a state where there's wave after wave of kids heading in for day one or lots and lots of schools, at least, who are going to have these staggered, you know, you're in group A, you're coming in on Monday and Thursday or whatever. So it sounds like virtual schooling is going to be mostly the order of the day. A few few pieces left to put together, but that's mostly the Maryland plan. Yeah, that definitely sounds like the trend in Maryland. I know a lot of jurisdictions have pushed back their opening dates already. Many have said they're going completely completely virtual. Others have said that they'll bring in small groups of vulnerable students for in-person learning, but it seems to be the trend to be virtual. Mm-hmm. And of course, all everyone's going to be reevaluating through the course of the semester just to decide on best next steps. Right. Yeah, and we talked about some of the challenges a few weeks ago, you know, just with school buses, right? Getting the kids to school, even if you did a staggered schedule, A day, B day, I think there'd be challenges there. We also know childcare is a huge looming issue that is going to have to be addressed. But we've seen other states open up schools and the results have not been pretty, at least from what I've seen so far. From the small sample size, it seems like there have been a lot of issues with reopening uh, and then, you know, finding out that somebody has COVID and then having to shut it down and quarantine. It looks like we're going to avoid that for the most part, but we know it's give and take on both sides. I think that's probably the right takeaway. I mean, I, I don't think you want to overreact to a bad story here and there. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of us saw a story from Indiana, the, the first day back in a public school, they got a positive test and suddenly they're, you know, leafing to page 58 in the manual about what do you do in the unlikely event there's a, there's a positive test. Well, here we are. It's like, you know, 1030 in the morning, the first day. Right. <laughs> so, right. I mean, so you don't, I don't think you want to be that school system that has, you know, put all your your eggs in the basket of this is going to be fine. And it doesn't look like Maryland's poised to be there. Um, you know, similar kind of weird situation in Georgia where they had a quick breakout and had to had to revert to a contingency plan. So I, I don't know. I mean, it looks like even though this has been basically a local option, it looks like Maryland being overwhelmingly remote is going to dodge most of that. But it's going to leave us with logistical issues that are serious. And like you said, childcare is going to be a really serious consequence of, of lots of kids being learning from home. They're going to need adult supervision and oversight. And what does that mean for parents who ordinarily would be out of the home? 
Right. They have to go to work. And what do you do? I know there's been some proposals. Some lawmakers here in Maryland are calling for local school systems to open up for child care. But that brings us back to the issue of bringing kids into the school building in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really it's a it's a tough issue for sure. Yeah, how much plexiglass you got, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and you know we saw an interesting issue in Montgomery County, and Drew, I know you're following this one too, as we all are. This has to do with the county, the county's health officer, and non-public schools. What is going on in Montgomery County? Give us sort of the the recap of what's happened so far. Yeah, definitely. So Montgomery County has already announced that public schools will be remote completely, fully for the next semester. So recently, they sought to disallow in-person offerings in non-public schools, so private religious schools, acting through their health officer, Dr. Travis Gales. The governor, Governor Hogan, then objected, and Maryland State Health Secretary Robert Neal sent out a memo prohibiting counties and local health officers from issuing blanket orders to close non-public schools. The Maryland Department of Health then announced a new policy prohibiting this. It appeared to be heading to the courts, but just recently, Montgomery County's health officer rescinded the order. So that is the latest. Mm -hmm. So a lot of back and forth there between the county's health officer and the governor in terms of whether or not the health officer has the authority to blanket close non-public schools, even though the county's public school system has said they're going to go virtual. And I think the health officer, Travis Gales, pointed out, look, I'm doing this on, based on metrics. We're trying to keep everybody safe. This is what we feel is in the best interest of our residents. But this gets into a number of tricky issues, right, Michael? And this is, again, as Drew said, this was appearing to go to the courts. And there is a quirky situation in general anyway with Montgomery County and its health officer, right? I mean, I think this this has the potential to get too wonky, even for the Conduit Street podcast. But um, I think it, it's noteworthy. I mean, Drew, you said it right. It's the county acting through the health officer. So this wasn't the county executive. It wasn't a vote of the county council. Mm -hmm. It was the health officer who was effectively deputized by the decision of the governor. I mean, the governor said words to the effect that we're going to let the science and the health experts guide our policy. And therefore, the local health officer is charged with making the call on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so when Dr. Gales in Montgomery County said, okay, this is our plan in Montgomery County, we find that the in-person education experience is just too much of a risk given the the breadth of the exposure around our county. We just don't think you can do that large or small, whether it's a building with 600 kids or 65, it, it doesn't matter. In-person schooling isn't going to work. We're not going to have it. That I guess was judged as that's going too far that, that, that you haven't looked at the details of each individual school's plan and what they expect to do. And you haven't given them, you know, their full, you know, their full hearing. So, I mean, that's the essential of the back and forth. But in, in my mind, this is a different fight than the state versus the county governments and who makes the call. This is a weird one because the health department, even though the building says in most counties, it says Calvert County Health Department, right. Cecil County Health Department, right. that is an entity really of state government. It gets a lot of funding from the county, but like who hires and fires the health officer is a weird mix. And whether that person is under the day-to-day -day control of the county government is a weird mix. Montgomery County is 
an, an anomaly even when this whole thing is a gray area. Right, right. So, so there's a weird legal challenge embedded in the, in the deep part of this back and forth that might be mooted now. If, if we've walked away from this fight and it's not going to get wrangled in, in federal court, then, you know, people like me will just drum our fingers for another decade and wait for this to be settled once and for all. Right. And, and the, the order from the, the state health department, they did leave open the possibility that the health officer could go to each individual school and check their reopening plans, correct? And if they don't feel it's safe, they'd have you know, the ability to say, you shouldn't reopen. Yes. Seem, it seems that way, maybe until it happens. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean how, can, how can you not feel like there might yet be one more shoe to drop? There's sure. an octopus living above us, and the number of shoes to drop, it may be more than two, right? So. <laughs> So weird situation there, but for now, it seems like things have settled down in Montgomery County when it comes to non-public school openings. But as you said, it does seem like there's another shoe to drop <laughs> for sure. And then let's let's quickly recap elections. That's been another hot topic, yeah. a lot of back and forth. And <laughs> if you follow along the Conduit Street blog, there's a lot on there. I don't know, Michael and Drew and Alex, how much do you want to recap of, of what's gone on so far? Or do you just want to talk about where we are now moving forward? No, I, th- I mean, I, I think it's been an interesting drama just getting to this point. And we've covered it to some degree. If you want the, the long, long version, I think Kevin's fingers are probably bloody and worn from having typed up article after article. It seems like every two days there's another 2,800 word think piece. <laughs> I mean, that's what it takes, really, to, to keep up with this stuff. It's, it's been nuts right so anyway but but i mean i guess the pendulum has stopped swinging right is that where we are yeah it seems that way it seems (laughs) that way i mean let's remind everybody the governor originally said we need to open up all the polling places our local boards of elections came back and said look we are about a third short of the number of judges that we will need to do that we have a number of polling locations that have told us we're not going to be able to use their facilities so we need to come up with something different they pitched this idea of vote centers which are essentially centralized places where any county resident can go within that county and cast a ballot you don't have to show up at your you know pre-designated polling place as long as you're within your county which is similar to early voting and the state board recommended to the governor that we open up every high school as a vote center in addition to all the early voting locations that we have so that'll mean that we'll need less election workers, which really solves that problem. Less training, less money. And of course, you can social distance. These are these are big high schools typically. So you'll still get mailed a ballot application, not a ballot. Nothing has changed there. But there is some relief for our local boards who said, we don't have the people to do this. We, you got to help us. So the governor approved that plan from the state board. He's the only one that can decide how we do this. And he's done that. So it seems like for now, we're going to move forward with this plan for consolidated vote centers. And as you said, for now, the pendulum has stopped swinging, but we'll have to see. I think much like school reopenings, there is always another shoe to drop and we'll see what happens moving forward. <laughs> but this is it, right? I mean, we, this one, we feel relatively comfortable that there was a unanimous vote vote of the, the state board of elections. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a group that sometimes has a partisan split. Here they didn't. And then the governor who can make the call said, fine, we'll do that plan. So, I mean, I guess the only thing I can think of that would really shock the plan would be if the school you know, superintendents and the school systems came back and said, you can't use our high school because of this valid reason. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and that is a big concern uh, because they really haven't weighed in as far as I know. So that is, I think, something that they're looking at now. The local boards of election will have to work with the local school boards to, to figure out if this space will be available for them. 
There is some flexibility. If you can't open the high school, you could open up a facility generally the same size. So if there was an issue there, but I think high schools make sense. That's the, the overall goal. But I will say the state board before unanimously said we should not open up every precinct and the governor decided that's what he wanted to do. So there is some precedent, although I think you're right. The governor has now approved this. Our local boards needed direction on how to move forward. I think they have it now. So now it's just a matter of the state board mailing out all of those applications for absentee ballots to voters. And hopefully we'll, we'll have some clarity moving forward with the in-person portion of the election. So it seems like they would want high schools because it's much easier to message and it's easier for people to, you know, sort of know what they're going to expect from the election. You know, you can, you know, you can go to any sort of high school. It's much easier for people to access um, and you can just you can go to whatever one is within closest to you uh, as opposed to having a dedicated polling center. You know, you get in the mail. This is where you go. Right. You can just head to your nearest high school. Yeah, and the concern was that if counties had to consolidate a number of polling places, they'd have to mail out all these voters with changes in their polling place. Now people can just show up and cast a ballot. You also have a lot of access, hopefully, with transit. People know where high schools are. They're easier to get to. So hopefully this this checks a bunch of boxes with just this one proclamation that's going to allow this to happen. But I agree. It, it hopefully will avoid a lot of voter confusion and provisional ballots for people who show up at the wrong polling place and then have to vote provisionally. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to, to tamp down on that as well. I think it's just it's it's weird, right? I mean, we've you know, this has been a running theme of as we've talked about coronavirus related policy issues for the last several months now. We just keep using this caveat: no one's ever been in this spot before. So, yeah, if we're going to have a relatively ordinary election, if we if we've taken off the table the mail everybody a ballot option, which we tried in June. It wasn't perfect. Um, the governor seems you know, resistant to the idea of basically running the November election the same way that we ran the June election. Some people disagree with that, but okay, that's, that's maybe behind us. If you take that as a given, then it, you have a list of things you're concerned about here. You don't want health risks for the employees or for the voters. Uh, you don't want people to be disenfranchised because of confusion or transportation or technology access and so forth. So, like, there's a lengthy list of boxes you want to check because this is voting. This isn't this isn't just being able to, you know, get, you know, get the new, uh, you know, the new PS5 or whatever. Right. right? OK, th- this is a little more fundamental as, as much as you know my kids want the PS5. I mean, so <laughs> right. yeah. but um, sorry, I hit a nerve. I can tell in the room. Um but it, it, you you have to take this stuff seriously. But at the same time, there's cost issues, there's staffing issues, there's um, and there's public health issues that lie in the background of all of this. We don't know how serious it will be for people, especially vulnerable people, to walk out in a public place and stand in a long line in early November. And that's exactly what you want to avoid, those long lines, right? And by having these vote centers, hopefully we can pull all of our resources into central locations and you'll have – more ability to, to, to avoid those long lines and make sure you have the proper personal protective equipment, PPE in place. It, it just it, It's what our local professionals on the ground said they needed, and it seems like that's what we're going to get. So I think it's a win for the local boards of elections, for the counties who administer elections at the local level. Hopefully now we avoid a lot of administrative and cost headache. 
Well, let's just hope that by late November, in the wake of the election, we're looking back and saying, yeah, this worked out okay. And that we're not looking back saying we took unnecessary risks or we flushed a bunch of taxpayer money down the toilet for no reason and so forth. I mean, those are the things we're trying to avoid. But mostly, we don't want to have people getting sick as a function of the way we conduct the election. We've talked a lot about state budget cuts, the potential for state budget cuts ahead. We know that state and local budgets have been decimated. Costs are going up. We have been covering the Board of Public Works where we saw the administration propose uh, a big chunk of cuts. seems like eons ago, but it was just, I think, probably a month ago. And Drew and Alex, I know you both watched the BPW as well. You know, this really covers every issue area that MAKO pays attention to. They approve contracts and procurement, and also they are allowed to make budget cuts when the General Assembly is not in, in session. There are some wonky quirks there, but generally that they can do that. So what's going on? You know, the BPW, we sit here and record on Tuesday, August 11th. They meet tomorrow, the 12th. We had thought maybe we'd see some more proposals at their at, at tomorrow's meeting, but what's the latest at BPW? So I think there's not going to be any budget cut proposals tomorrow. We know they're coming, but probably not tomorrow. Right. And we know they're coming, as you said. Um, you know, they've made it very clear. And also when the General Assembly comes back to town, they're going to have to deal with a lot of proposed cuts from the governor as well, right? And that is certainly going to affect county governments as well as a number of other folks across the board. Right. It's just, it's it's a weird circumstance. They convened on, what was it? I mean, was it July 1st? Yeah, maybe it was. It was like in the very yeah. first few days of the fiscal year. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, fiscal people literally are cleaning the confetti off the floor <laughs> from having their big end of fiscal year party and stuff, right? So... And, and then the Board of Public Works convenes and they've got this big, you know, $2 billion hit list. We're going to cut this stuff today. And we have these things that are going to be planned to go before the General Assembly whenever they come back. And, and okay, that, that's fine. Not all of it goes through. They end up with the Board of Public Works isn't ready to make all those decisions right away. So, you know, they're, they're thinking about state employees. They're thinking about local governments. There, there's a variety of things that gave, they gave them some, some choke points. But it wasn't we're not going to do anything. It was Mm -hmm. the first week of July, we're not ready to decide all these things. So let's take some time. So if we're we're now just setting our sights down a little further and it's going to be September or the fall, then... I mean, I don't know, like we, we work with our with our uh, park and rec staff in, in county governments and a lot of their funding comes through state program open space. Those are grant programs and so forth. Uh, I mean, I'm sure people like that are sort of pacing the floors wondering, you know, what's going to happen? We know budget cuts are coming. We know these have been targets of one time, you know, one time shifts and so forth in the past. I have to imagine working with our park and rec people. They're emblematic of the typical, we're pacing the floor wondering, you know, when, you know, again, using that, that when's the shoe going to drop mm-hmm. analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's perfect. It's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot of shoes. Right? <laughs> there are a lot of shoes, yeah. Right, that's exactly right. I mean, speaking of parks and rec administrators, I mean, these, these are kind of, you know, program open spaces, you know, program where a lot of times you receive, you know, a certain amount of state money per year, but you kind of save that up for some of these larger projects. And, you know, with all that funding being at risk and you don't know when you're going to receive, you know, another allocation, it really puts in in, uh, in flux your planning and your ability to kind of develop some of these projects. So I think they're just on edge, hoping that they can re- retain some of their funding, 
uh, and, and not be zeroed out this year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, program open space is a is a tricky bird to understand. There's always been sort of a select joint committee in the legislature, so you can have at least six or eight people in the entire legislature who kind of understand that program. But the idea is, transfer taxes get paid when properties being developed. The real estate market's hot. People are buying property. Sometimes they're buying farms and turning them into condos and so forth. That generates revenue through the transfer tax. Some of that money goes to program open space. And the idea is, let's use that to protect sensitive lands and make sure that some of this stuff can stay undeveloped, that you can buy easements and you can buy buy properties and so forth. But if you're a small county, your allocation might only be 40 grand a year. You might need to wait six years worth of those allocations to come up with enough money to buy one chunk of land that can make a difference someplace. And so at any given time, there can be some junior budget analyst who says, aha, Kent County sitting on $175,000. They must not have anything to do with this money. That sounds like a good cut to me. So we'll just cut, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that is the case across all local governments and in every department, you know, sitting around and waiting to see when that, again, that other shoe will drop. But I think by the fall, they'll have some updated revenue projections. They'll have some new data to look at. And maybe that changes, you know, what they need to do. But we certainly know for fiscal 21, which we are in now, things are going to be pretty dire. And in the out years as well, that the pandemic has really, really affected state and local governments and their ability to provide these frontline services every single day without the revenues, you know, and, and counties are heavily reliant on the income tax. We know a lot of people are out of work or they're working less. Certainly there's going to be an issue and hopefully the state does not pass the buck down to counties to fix their own problems because that isn't going to solve anything. It's just going to make it worse at the local level. And your connection to the, the to the national economy and the ability of state and local governments to, you know, have the revenue to provide these services connects us to federal issues. And that's a pretty good segue for the back half. Right. So we're going to go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we'll talk about the latest from Washington, including the new COVID-19 relief package, if there will be one. All that and more after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So, if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson, Drew Jabin, and Alex Butler. On the front half, we recapped a number of outstanding issues that are certainly going to affect state and counties here in Maryland, as well as across the nation, potentially. But let's get into an issue that will definitely affect every single county, every single state. And that is the next round of federal stimulus in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This has also been a back and forth for many, many months is relief from the feds to state and local governments. And this has really turned in now, Michael, to negotiations between Congress and the White House. We know that the House Democrats passed their $3.5 trillion HERO Act back in May. 
Senate leadership and the administration are pushing for a smaller package, about a trillion dollars, and negotiations now seem to be at an impasse. What is going on in Washington as we speak? I mean, I hope that they are back at the negotiating table, and we'll get into some of the complications in a second. But what's your read here, Michael, in terms of this next round of stimulus and how it may affect states and counties? Yeah, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we had a pretty timely discussion on the podcast with Mark Ritacco from the, the National Association of Counties policy staff, and he sort of walked us through at the time – that felt like a very live negotiation that, um, you know, the Congress was looking at an August recess. There were a number of, of programs that were scheduled to expire. Uh, and they were looking at, you know, August 8th as sort of a magic date to get a bunch of things done and so forth. Um, that date has come and gone. So we're now sort of past the, the you know, the clock has already hit midnight and kept going. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with some of these temporary programs. But so, I mean, I mean, negotiations at the congressional level seem like they've completely stopped. And I think our best advice for listeners and for readers is head to NACO. And they've been covering this awfully closely. They've got the most up-to-date information on what's happening in D.C. and with the Congress. But the, the sort of three-legged stool of the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House, and the White House – they didn't seem to be able to come up with a package. There wasn't a new bill. There wasn't a compromise, you know, slate of legislation that suddenly got hustled through this past Friday or Saturday. So where we are instead is we end up with the White House and President Trump issuing a series of executive orders saying there are some components of a package we were hoping to get that I'm going to try and affect by way of executive order. So this is basically, you know, the, the executive branch hereby declares A, B, C, D, and E. Right. So I'll make it so. Right. right. Because Congress can't get their act together. And we know some of the sticking points are the desperately needed aid for state and local governments, money to reopen schools, liability protections for businesses. And we've heard a lot about this additional $600 per week federally backed unemployment benefit, which expired earlier this month. And one of these executive orders the president signed, and Drew, this is your area, and hopefully you can walk us through what's going on here. One of the executive orders the president signed does provide an extra $400 a week in unemployment benefits. That's not the 600, but it's four. But there is a quirk here as well that states would have to pay a quarter of the cost to to provide these extra benefits, right? And that's that seems to be what's happening now. Yeah, so the federal government would fund the 300 for the additional payment, and then states would come in and cover the remaining 100. And obviously, you know, states are hemorrhaging money. So, I mean, we've seen some figures of what this would cost, and it doesn't seem doable at this point. I, I don't. I don't think you can say. I mean, I, I. I don't think there's any reliable way to forecast if if this really comes together. I think that's part of what we want to talk about right, is right. the nature of a federal executive order and what does it really mean. But if this comes together as planned, and the offer is basically the feds will match your your one hundred dollars with three hundred dollars, how many states will decide to do that? And I'm not sure we know. I mean, the the obvious thing to look at is Medicaid expansion. Over the last decade or so, the, the, the federal government set up a very generous match and said as long as the states will be, will be willing to put in, you know, in the neighborhood of 10 cents on the dollar of the cost of expanding your Medicaid offerings to a lot more people – 
then you know we'll do most of the heavy lifting. You just flip the switch and give us a dime, and we give you the ninety cents. And we still have. I don't know what the count is, but it's more, it's a non-negligible number of U.S. states that have said, thanks, but no thanks. We'll just stay right where we are. Um, who knows? I mean, the, the politics, we've talked about the, the sort of political differences of opinion over whether the enhanced unemployment is good policy for employers. Um, and so I don't know what's going to happen across the country if this really comes together this way. But Alex, I mean, I saw Governor Andrew Cuomo from New York, and he is now uh, the head of the National Governors Association. Larry Hogan just passed the torch to him. I saw a, a number from him, and you and I were talking about it. What does he say in terms of what it would cost his state to do this? And New York is definitely one of the states that did expand that that Medicare. So what does he say in terms of New York's cost just to do it? Well, both New York and, and New Jersey, I believe, have said that they can't afford the 25%. Um, Ohio has said that they're still checking. And, uh, you know, these states are clutching CARES funding, uh, hoping for some flexibility to plug existing budget gaps already. So I think it's going to be tough for a lot of these states to come up with 25%. Right. And I think for New York, it's $4 billion, and they're facing a $30 billion budget hole. I think Governor Hogan, for his part, has said they're reviewing the order. They're waiting for guidance on what to do here. But you mentioned Ohio, Alex, and I saw that the president now seems to be saying that some states may be off the hook for providing that extra benefit. They could still get the federal money. Uh, they wouldn't have to put up the state portion, but they'd have to apply, essentially, and the, and the president would have to sign off on it. That seems to be another weird quirk here, even as you know these executive orders are going to potentially be challenged in court. But, Michael, have you seen something like like this before? Again, there's a lot of confusion out there about this. No, <laughs> no nobody's seen anything <laughs> like uh, that. Okay. So we don't know how this is going to work and if it's going to work, but – I mean, the one thing that lies in the background of all this is state governments don't have a mint. We don't have the ability to go just print money. We don't have the ability to just float bonds and have international investors buy bonds so we can raise a ton of cash to make this year's budget work fine. And then run that, deficits. And that's that's the ordinary course of business for the federal government. And they run a deficit every single year. And so the magnitude of the deficit is the only debate. You know, Are we going to expand the national debt a lot or a lot lot? That's the only political debate in federal fiscal sobriety. At the state and county level, you don't have that flexibility. You balance every year, period. Mm -hmm. So the idea of just magicking, magicking a billion dollars to come up with your match on something your citizens desperately need sounds like a nice idea. And for the U.S. Congress, they can have that debate. They can say, are we willing to bend that far in this tough time? The state of New York, the state of Maryland, the city of Baltimore do not have that luxury. We don't have a mint to go to and say, hey, let's just have Denver print us up another billion dollars. Right. And, and this is also, I mean, when it comes to the technology needed to do this, Drew, I know a lot of states had issues, you know, coming up with systems to take care of that enhanced funding in the CARES Act and, and making sure that these unemployment benefits got out to people in a timely manner. This would, again, require new technology, new programming of computers, which, you know, states, that's, that's going to take some time to do. And this is a limited amount of money. We don't know how long it will last anyway. But talk about the technological challenges that Maryland and other states saw just trying to get that extra benefit out the door. Yeah, definitely. A lot of states have had problems implementing the technology 
there's been a lot of issues. And, and it's just we're asking a lot more questions than unemployment insurance today asks. Because today, unemployment insurance is a pretty simple, no-fault percent of lost income we replace through that program. So that's basically like, did you lose your job? How'd you lose your job? Right. What'd you used to make? Here's your check. And now it's turned into this big convoluted, we're going to ask a whole bunch of tiered questions. And what does your state do versus, it's just, it makes things harder. And we don't know, is this going to be for six weeks, for six months, for six years? Right. I mean, do you, do you go and hire a contractor to rewrite your computer software so that you can do it for two rounds of checks? And then when it's done, yeah, there's no more money once you get it up and running. Right. 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 I mean, I mean, and, and like this is an executive order, so it could be overridden by a piece of legislation as soon as tomorrow morning. Right. <laughs> so, right. I mean, so anyway, the whole thing is, is thin ice. And so there's another executive order, speaking of uncertainty, having to do with payroll taxes and withholding. And this is something that the president has talked about for a long time, a payroll tax cut. He's trying to do something here through an executive order, but there's also a lot of uncertainty with what to do here as well. It's, it's sort of, it's sort of an, an alternate way to put money in people's pockets akin to the one-time $1,200 checks that went out back in, I don't know, April, May. Some people are still waiting for their check. But, you know, so in, in theory, the, the Fed said, we need to keep money in the economy. We know a lot of people are facing a hard time. So here's a check for an awful lot of people. And but not people that don't have jobs. Uh, well, well, in this circumstance, the idea of we'll give you a break on what's being taken out of your paycheck is a substitute for that, but it's not a perfect substitute. It's not a one-shot pile of money right. like a check is. So it would accumulate over time. And for people who have lost their job, a reduced withholding on the paycheck they don't have gives them nothing. Yeah. And I was on, I mean, I was on a call earlier with county people talking about they don't know what to do with withholdings. It's a tough spot to be in. The county HR um, folks are trying to figure out kind of what the next step is. Congress hasn't said anything. The president signed an executive order. So what what happens next? Are employers supposed to just defer? They're just right now there isn't really a great answer. Right. Right. And so the, the idea to make um, to make the needle move for the economy right now, presumably, is that employers would change everybody's paycheck right away. So the president signed a piece of paper and said, we're not going to collect the Social Security tax anymore. So everybody's paycheck should go up by a bump. Okay, that sounds fine. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what the authority of an executive order to do this is, nor how long it lasts. Right. And as you mentioned, Congress could override this executive order. Right. And so if you start taking out uh, or deferring withholding, what happens if it gets overridden and then you have to go back to your employers and say, hey, by the way, we got to we got to take a full paycheck from you because we were supposed to be taking all this money the whole time. But Congress overrode that executive order. So I, I don't think it even takes a congressional override to get you into that trouble spot. Or, yeah, it's possible that that this is just more than the president can do with an executive order. So we can that, have this challenge. Yeah. And, that, and then at some point a month or three months from now, the federal courts end up saying, you just can't do this. And if you kind of followed along and told all your employees, your paychecks are bigger, hooray, hooray. And then you come back to, you know, and say, oh, by the way, we need to claw back all that money that we didn't take out of those paychecks. Sorry. So I guess Drew, <laughs> Drew Alex and I are going to ask Michael Sanderson, are we 
are going to get bigger <laughs> paychecks at our next pay period. I guess that's uh, you're grappling with that decision as well. Uh, it's all true. Everybody has to, right? Right. So, it's a deal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you know, you mentioned these executive orders over the weekend, uh, designed to be a substitute uh, for congressional inaction, but. These all could be challenged. They could end up in court. And this is just a big mess. Nobody really knows what to do. And look, state and local governments are employers as well. But this this just gets to executive orders versus legislation, right? And the problem with executive orders generally. Talk a little bit about that, Michael. I know this is a, a riff that you like to go on. Well, this is, I mean, first of all, this is a separate like podcast series. And we could we could launch, you know, we could bring Walter Olson back. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, like, and do like an eight episode series about the nature of executive authority and the separation of powers in the Constitution and for the talk Patreon about the Federalist right, Paper. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. For the for the special, yeah, for the for the Conduit Street OnlyFans account. That'd right. be, um, <laughs> so but I mean the the abbreviated version, I think, is y- you build the government with a legislative body to do this kind of stuff. And independent of whether you like what the executive branch wants to do in the moment. And this applies to this administration, the last administration, and any future administration. When you, when you say we're frustrated that the legislative process hasn't yielded the fruit we want and therefore we're going to sign a piece of paper saying just make it so, you've betrayed a pretty important concept in the, the, the building of our structure of government separation so, of powers right, and 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 so and and then you end up with things like the DACA program for immigration, which is none of our business and not something that we're going to talk about. But the reason that's so complicated and political is that it's a house of cards. Right. It's it's an administrative executive action um, that's about legislative policy that there has been no consensus to alter or, or change. Same situation here that the Congress couldn't come up with a relief package. And you mentioned all the things they were trying to get to there. I mean, there's a lot of people really concerned about about um, about civil immunity for employers who might face COVID-related lawsuits. Right, absolutely. And, and it's a legitimate policy debate to have. And if they can't get together with a big compromise on the whole thing, then they won't resolve that one piece. You end up with executive orders saying, well, let's take a couple pieces of low-hanging fruit and try and do them. So let's try and put some money in people's pocket. We can't do the new appropriation and send out the checks, but let's let's just suspend collecting money out of paychecks. We, we think we can just do that. And, and you know, right? unfortunately, I, I think this is, again, turning political. There's an election coming up. Sure. So no doubt about it, politics are playing into this process. Who has the upper hand? And as you mentioned earlier, I think negotiations have completely broken down at this point. We know that, you know, a potential piece of a new stimulus bill would send out checks to all Americans just like before. You'd have more money for reopening schools, these liabilities you're talking about. But now with these executive orders that we don't know what to do with, it seems like the negotiations are off the table again. And what we care about most, aid for state and local governments, therefore, is off the table, at least for now. It seems that way. And and now you're going to end up with this cockeyed debate about one person says a person needs a $1,200 check. And the counterpoint is, no, she's getting $16 a week in tax cut. And that somehow that's fine. Right. I mean, you got, you, you've got to be kidding me. So that's what's going on in Washington. Always interesting to, to see what they're up to. Alex, Drew, any final thoughts before we wrap up here today? Alex, I know on the environmental front there have been some updates. Anything you want to add there? 
Um, no, I mean, since the pandemic kind of kicked off, I mean, it's just been, you know, debates over EPA rollbacks, um, stuff like that. I think in general, you know, there's there's a lot going on. You know, government is still functioning uh, regardless of the pandemic in, in its normal way. So keep an eye on, you know, some of these agencies like USDA and EPA. Uh, they're, they're starting to issue guidance and revising uh, a lot of the regulations. And, and we know, Drew, you've been working a lot on broadband. This has been a hot topic, you know, with this pandemic, with kids needing access to virtual learning, people needing to work from home. It seems like you've been working with your IT affiliate and with the state to, to maybe come up with some ideas on how we can make sure all Marylanders have access. And, and that's an important issue moving forward, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's been exacerbated with the pandemic. So many people, like you said, are working from home. As we talked about earlier, students are virtually learning. Telehealth is now a huge thing. So broadband for everyone is just so important. Yep. Right. And Michael, we'll leave the last question to you. Are we going to see bigger paychecks because of this executive <laughs> order? We'll, we'll leave it there today. Right. Last final word. Well, I mean, I think we have to work out the negotiation of the what signature appears on the new paycheck. <laughs> I think there has to be an embossed image and so forth. So there's a lot of there's a lot of mechanics and computer programming involved. So All right. We'll so we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> let's, let's just take a vote right now. <laughs> yeah, well, a, yeah. The eyes have it. My, All right. <laughs> My, my my very good political friend, Sheila Hickson, was very fond of looking around the room and saying, I like the votes we have right now. Let's call the question. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of the episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael, Alex, and Drew, this is Kevin signing off, and we'll talk to you soon.